Welcome to the 12th House Podcast. I'm Michelle Pellison, your host and the head witch in charge here at Holisticism, and welcome back to the feed. If you're new here, hi! So excited to have you. The 12th House in astrology is the house of secrets and mysteries and the unseen, and sometimes uh, it's a little creepy. Like People are kind of scared of the 12th House, but we really like it here at Holisticism. It's a place where things are kind of unknowable, and to me, it's always represented a place where you can be curious and, and try to shine a light and learn and see what might be there or see what might exist that others are afraid to see. And that's what we try to talk about on this podcast, in particular through the lens of wellness and well-being. So we examine spirituality, wellness trends, exercise, nutrition, death, life, money, relationships, intuitive business, all through this lens of curious questioning and talking about the things that other people kind of don't want to talk about. And it's so fun. We are smack dab in the middle of a series on money as medicine. And this concept has been one that we've played with for a long time at Holisticism. And I'm really excited to be able to present this to you and to be able to present these conversations to you for free with really brilliant people. (laughs) And today's guest is no exception. Chantel Chapman is the founder of the Trauma of Money. And I've been following Trauma of Money since I would say early days pandemic or even pre-pandemic. And wow, I'm so impressed with everything that she's built. Not only do I like love her teachers and the people on her team, but I love the concept that she's created like more deeply beyond who works with her. I love the concept that she's bringing to the table. This idea that money and our relationship to money can be traumatic and is traumatic for, I would say the majority of us, whether we recognize it or not. And, you know, we talk about it in this episode we talk about a lot from where the money trauma comes from. Is it generational, intergenerational, relational? How do you figure that out? How do you find it? How do you clear it? How do you move past it? To why would we? And how do we exist in this world? And we also talk about anti-capitalism and how that's really been a buzzword that's thrown around, especially I've noticed in the wellness space, and I'm sure we've been guilty of it. But I try to say as often as possible, capitalism critical and divesting from the problematic aspects of capitalism. And you're going to hear why in this episode when we get to like probably the 40 minute mark. And if you are a skipper or you normally listen to half of a conversation and then bounce, I would say like get to that point because I think there's some really important stuff that Chantel talks about that. And she's does so, so thoughtfully. She's just been doing this for so long that she can speak incredibly well to it, that is really important and needs to be said. We talk about either or thinking, which has been a concept that's come up also throughout these conversations, which I think is really interesting. And that through line of black and white thinking, either or thinking with it, which is a cognitive distortion. The fact that that keeps coming up is really not just like fascinating to me from the interviewer's perspective, but is really teaching me a lot about how we are conditioned to think about money and wealth and affluence, even in the spiritual space. And I'm marinating on that concept a lot. And it's really like changing some things for me personally. Maybe I'll talk about it at some point, but I would love to hear from you what you're taking away from this series. And I hope that you're loving it. We've had some amazing conversations so far. And this conversation with Chantel is no exception. She's truly incredible. And I can't wait to have her on again. So I just can't wait for you to listen to the episode. Before we get into that, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe to the 12th House Podcast. When you send us a screenshot of your five-star review, or four stars, but like five stars is better, we will enter you to win our raffle. This month, we are raffling away one spot to the, or 
a couple spots to do the four day energetic recalibration. It's an awesome, tight little four day course that takes about 10 minutes a day and just like really is a road opener, <laughs> opens up your energy and it's really fun. This is a good time to do it. I find that this little break, this like no time zone right after Thanksgiving and before December starts is a nice time to like clear out any energy that's sort of stuck, not blocked, but stagnant. So enter to win, just send us a review, send us your review. So to enter to win, just take a screenshot of your review and send it to the text line below. And we'll let you know if you, if you're the lucky winner. And okay, with that, let's get on the episode. Hi, Chantel. Welcome to the 12th house. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're delighted to have you. I've been following Trauma of Money, I think, since the pandemic started. And Maceo, one of your teachers, is giving a blessing at my wedding next week. So we have a lot wow. of like overlapping circles of people. <laughs> oh, wow. That That's going to be very special because, as you know, Maceo and his words are so beautiful and meaningful. Yeah, he's... He's so special and I feel doubly lucky because he's not just giving a blessing on the day of our wedding, but he's also roasting us the night before. So we get a little bit of both. <laughs> oh, wow. that's going to be incredible. <laughs> yeah. There's something in the ether that's connecting us. How did you honestly get the ovaries up to start an entire business called Trauma of Money? Where did that come from? Well, I mean, if we were to look at LinkedIn, my I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But you know, like that that like tr- that question and the traditional response is like, oh well, you know, I started my career in finance at 21 years old. I started as a mortgage broker, and then I taught financial literacy, and then I and then my business evolved into more of this like holistic approach. But that's not really the truth of where trauma of money came from, and it actually came from my experiences growing up in poverty with a single mother and developing a lot of core beliefs around money very early that connected my sense of worth and safety to money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really kind of lived in a state of unawareness for probably like most of my life up until maybe about seven years ago. And then through some experiences of trauma arising to the surface. I started noticing that a lot of the decisions I made in my life were really connected to safety and money. Mm -hmm. And here I was working in finance, teaching financial literacy, and having some really interesting behaviors myself around money, like, you know, constantly carrying credit card debt, paying taxes late, always undercharging. And it wasn't until I went on like a healing journey that I realized that all of these behaviors had nothing to do with my financial literacy knowledge because I was teaching financial literacy, but more to do with my experiences around trauma. Mm. And so I'm naturally a very curious person and I love philosophy and I love to explore why things happen the way they do. And I asked this question, what actually impacts our relationship with money? And then that's how the trauma of money model came to be. And once I, I really, I, I saw the vision of the model and the model is this six layered model of what impacts our money. And that is generational and intergenerational trauma, relational trauma, societal trauma, systemic trauma and social context, laws of nature, and then financial literacy. Once I like vision this model, 
the next step was I needed to find all of the experts that can go deep into this. And then that's how really like the trauma of money curriculum came to be. It was really all out of curiosity. I am so curious just to pull back for a second to you being a 21 year old mortgage broker and what that was like in terms of experiencing some of that trauma come up. Were you aware of it at the time or was it not until a lot later? Well, it was interesting because I was so not aware of the trauma that I was carrying at the time. And prior to me becoming a mortgage broker, I was in my early 20s. I'd never gone to post-secondary education because the way I grew up is like, that is not accessible to you. And yeah, there are student loans, but the whole idea of like getting a loan to go to college or university was just off the table because debt was something that caused so much pain in my family growing up that like, I didn't even think it was accessible for me to go apply for a student loan. So I was, you know, I was like waitressing and I was trying to figure out like, what do I want to do with my life? And I really wanted to be a teacher, Mm -hmm. but I was dating someone who was heavily involved in organized crime at the time, which Mm -hmm. later I learned is was really part of my money trauma because I grew up Mm -hmm. thinking like growing up in poverty and having these traumatic experiences in my childhood. I believe that, if we had money, these bad things would have never happened to me. Hmm. And so I found myself very attracted to someone who had a lot of money, but was like earning money in a bad way, you know, through crime. Mm -hmm. Right. And the ironic thing, and this is what trauma does is like trauma was telling me that because he had money, I was safe. And I was literally living in a house with like bars on my window and like tasers in our glove box in our car because like it was so unsafe. I'm so fascinated by the unconscious nature of how long it can take us to put the two and two together. And it seems like it's come full circle in the creation of trauma of money. Yeah. At the time I had no awareness, but like back to that, why did I become a mortgage broker? Well, Mm -hmm. that decision was, I was trying to figure out what I want to do. And he heavily influenced that. He's like, become a mortgage broker because one, you can do it quickly. You can make a lot of money. And then all of a sudden me and all my gangster friends know a mortgage broker. And and I was like, okay. And it was like, all you had to do was go to the university and do like a certificate training. So it was super accessible from an education standpoint. And I was able to get into that career. And thank goodness I had the wisdom to end that relationship before I really kind of started in that career. So I was not thankfully involved in any like shady mortgages or anything, but yeah, like even, even after I broke up with that relationship, I still did not have the awareness of the connection between that desiring that and trauma. You know, I really thought like, oh, well I'm young and I live in an area where it's kind of cool to date a gangster and like, you know, it's kind of cool to like be picked up at high school on a motorcycle (laughs) And that's all I thought about it. But it wasn't until like much later in my life that I started to see like, wow, I made those decisions because of trauma. Like my, what I found attractive was all trauma. It was all coming through the lens of trauma. When did you first have that light bulb moment of like, oh, hey, because like this word trauma, I feel like I, it didn't apply to me. I felt like it didn't apply to me until, I don't know, maybe I really started learning about it at like 25. I just never really considered mm-hmm. anything 
I, although I'd had a ton of really traumatizing events, I just was like, eh, I don't, I don't have that. That's for people who like lived through nine 11, you know, yeah. or like went to war. When did you orient and identify that like trauma, either big T or little T trauma was something that you had? Well, I sort of had an awareness because I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. So I sort of had an awareness because like we're taught like sexual abuse is traumatic, but mm-hmm. there was like a lot of deeper layers around t- trauma to do with poverty and to dr- do with like growing up in a household with someone who was an addict that mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of until later. And it happened when someone very close to me in my family called me up and was like, hey, can you come pick me up at a detox center? I just got kicked out of a detox center and I'm like, what the hell? I didn't even know you were, what are you using? And he's like, I'm addicted to heroin and fentanyl. Mm. And I just like threw myself into his recovery. Mm. And when I was, you know, really very close with him and trying to help him find like a treatment center to go to. And I don't know how it is where you live, but here in BC, the way it works is, you know, to go to treatment, you have to pay every day for your bed. And there's only a certain amount of beds available that the government will pay for. And the wait list for that is really long. So if someone's like, hey, I'm ready to get sober today, that might not be a possibility. And so I was really trying to get this person into treatment. And the only place that was available was halfway house, which is basically a place that houses folks who are transitioning out of prison. And they were using drugs in prison. And so they, they go into this house before they, like in the transition mode to do like rehab essentially. So he's here living in this halfway house. And I was going there like every single day, just very worried about him. And I was like bringing them, I was cooking them soups and bringing them food because their freezer was filled with like pizza pockets and all this like shit food. And I know a lot about like dopamine and hormones. And when you're detoxing from a drug, your dopamine baselines are super low and you cannot be eating pizza pockets. Like Mm -hmm. you need to have nutrition. So I'm like bringing them food and I'm like meditating with them every day. And I'm just talking to them at length and talking, asking them a lot of questions, like what made you use heroin or like, why would you do this? And everything they described, I was like, that's me. That's me. But I didn't choose heroin. Mm. Like I felt so connected to this person that I was Mm. helping in their recovery, my family member Mm. and to the men in this house. And it's like, I just didn't choose heroin, but what did I choose? Mm -hmm. Oh, I choose, I chose to be a workaholic Mm -hmm. or I chose to overspend Mm -hmm. or I chose to be incredibly codependent. Even me being at this house, helping these people is me being in my addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just, that was when I had the aha moment, like, oh my God, this is all connected. And yeah. And and then I went on a really like a five-year research journey around Mm -hmm. trauma addiction, recovery, mindfulness, the psychology of scarcity, studying like neurochemicals, studying behavioral economics, and just trying to find the connections between all of these. Because as you know, in a lot of traditional psychological scientific approaches, it's extremely reductionist. Mm -hmm. And they do that because they want very clean data, right? Mm -hmm. But in that reductionist approach, we lose the holistic nature of healing. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I wanted to do with like trauma of money is bring together more of this, like this approach where we're not reducing it. We're saying like, actually there are similarities to 
what happens to the brain when we're in trauma and when we're in scarcity. And like, let's map those similarities and talk about them. Similar to workaholism or overspending, there are certain things that are very easy to fly under the radar in terms of addiction and what's acceptable. Consumerism and dopamine is something I'm so fascinated by. And Michelle and I have been very obsessed with recently and are basically starting a new podcast on this concept. And I would love to hear your perspectives on your research. I'm personally so fascinated by how that works in your brain chemically. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I feel like understanding how dopamine and pain and pleasure works can provide so much liberation for us. You know, because, you know, we live, we live in consumerism, and we live in capitalism, and we live in a colonized society. And I truly believe that, like, all of these isms are really fueled by not truly understanding pain and pleasure and dopamine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, consumerism, the main narrative of consumerism is, if I ever feel defective in any way, so if I feel inadequate, bored, lonely, any sort of pain, something's wrong with me and I need to fix it right away. And there's a lot of convenient solutions that consumerism offers to fix pain. And so this narrative that when we experience pain, we have to go try and change the state of pain immediately leads to this like hedonic treadmill, this this Mm -hmm. treadmill of chasing pleasure. Mm -hmm. And what the research around dopamine has showed us is that Dopamine is associated with the pain and pleasure centers in our brain. And the pain and pleasure centers in our brain, they act like a teeter-totter or like a scale, right? So every single time our dopamine baseline increases, so we have like a surge of pleasure, on the other side of that, for our brain to get into balance or homeostasis is pain. Mm. So like just that understanding that, okay, like, after pleasure, I'm probably going to experience pain or some sort of a low and being able to sit with that and be with it instead of going immediately trying to fix it. Because if I have pleasure, then I have pain and I'm like, something's wrong. I got to fix that. And I got to get more pleasure. I might seek out an activity that will increase the dopamine quickly. But on the other side of that is more pain. So it's like this constant cycle. Hmm. Absolutely. That's so interesting. I, I didn't know that about consumption. I know more about dopamine from the perspective of focus and ADHD and how people with ADHD have this cocktail of norepinephrine, which is anxiety, pain, and dopamine, pleasure, and focus that is they need so much more of both of those hormones or chemicals in order to get something done. So people with ADHD tend to be very, very extreme. So they become workaholics because you need like 10 times the level of pressure that the average person needs in order to help yourself get focused. Or you need to be listening to podcasts at 2x speed while also listening to music, while also typing emails to people in order to feel stimulated enough to actually like focus on what the task at hand. And I I do think that that somehow plays into consumption too of that like almost to the nth degree. In fact, I've been reading a lot about how ADHD influences our shopping habits and our ability to like make sort of like impulsive decisions around buying things. And I think that that's so fascinating, especially considering that 
people with uh, squiggly brains, as we like to call them, are not so good at things like returning. You know, we're really good at retrieval, just like even in setup of our of our worlds, we can retrieve things with ease, but putting things back is really, really challenging. So if you buy something and you're like, oh, I'll just return it if it doesn't work for me, the likelihood that you're going to return that thing is so low <laughs> because we're not, we're just not good at it. And I could see that being a vicious cycle in terms of a relationship to money and, and just like, yeah, be, feeling supported by it. Wow. That's fascinating because oftentimes with a compulsive spending, we see it's not so much about the shopping. It's about seeking dopamine increases, right? Mm -hmm. So when we are trying to identify the reason behind someone's compulsive spending, we, we often ask them to really pay attention to the journey of the spending. And so in a dopamine chasing spend, it's all about the buy. And then once you have it, it's like, you don't care about any anymore because dopamine is all about like new and different. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got like the ADHD on the other side where the returning is hard, that like layered with that, like desire to have the increase of the dopamine baseline can result in a lot of negative impacts as, as far as like debt and overspending. And also the more we seek dopamine, so the more we seek like increases in dopamine, the smaller the window of like dopamine sensitivity gets or reward sensitivity gets. So like our window of pleasure shrinks the more we're chasing dopamine. Mm -hmm. So consumerism can really shrink that like window of pleasure. Mm, that's why people go on like dopamine fasts, right? Where they kind of cut everything out to sort of get their baseline back to maybe normal or... or yeah homeostasis, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So one of the researchers that explores the intersection between addiction and dopamine is Dr. Anna Lemke. And she has a framework for healing dopamine addiction, which I actually have it on my wall here behind us. So it's, it's, I was wondering what that was. I, I love I this know, chart. So yeah, yeah. Well, I always laugh because Maceo and my like office looks the same. Like we've got like writing all over the wall. Like, yeah, we kind of think the same way. So, but Dr. Anna Lemke, she says like she works with folks who are working in addiction recovery and she focuses on dopamine addiction. And she says to do a 30 day dopamine fast, as you said, and it mm -hmm. takes approximately 30 days to help raise the dopamine baseline. And she has a framework for this called dopamine. So the D stands for data, like collecting data. Mm -hmm. The O is for figuring out the objective. So once you explore and do inventory on your, whatever the behavior is, the dopamine seeking behavior is, really understand the objective of it. So like with shopping, we, we ask this question, what's the why of the buy, right? So that's mm -hmm. like us taking, figuring out the objective of our data. And then P stands for problems related to use. So identifying, okay, I'm doing this behavior. Like what are the problems related to this? Mm -hmm. That's part of that inventory piece. And then A is abstinence. So 30 days, complete stop that behavior that is giving you the dopamine increase. M is mindfulness, so more inventory, paying attention to what's happening on that journey. And then I is insight. And then N is next steps. 
So oftentimes, like when we're trying to stop something, a behavior for, you know, like 30 days, that next steps piece, it's very much pulls from the 12 steps. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, like what's my contrary action? What's my next right step? Mm -hmm. And then E is exploration. So that's like her dopamine framework of the the 30 day dopamine fast. Do you think that there, a lot of people were forced into a dopamine fast during COVID kind of? because of a lack of stimulation in, in many ways. I, I wonder if that had effect on on people inadvertently in that way. Some okay, positive, some negative. So, you know, people say like, oh, I booked a trip because like I want to look forward to something. Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. dopamine because dopamine is about the chase. It's really about the looking forward to, right? And dopamine's amazing for motivation. It It's what helps us get out of bed, you know? And I I heard during the pandemic that like so many folks were like, I feel like I have nothing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. And then when you when you don't feel like that, then you feel really the low. It's like the decrease in dopamine. But I think that there's so many sources of dopamine. Like look at social media. Maybe we saw a surge in like scrolling on social media, which we know is going to result in an increase in the dopamine baseline. So did we see people's dopamine baseline dropping? Do we see less less dopamine-seeking behavior? Or do we see people switching out their sources of dopamine? As an introvert, I cannot relate to booking a trip or looking forward to an event. I'm just like, no, <laughs> that does not, that does not compute for me. <laughs> I, I'm like, I look forward to reading my book this weekend by myself. <laughs> I'm so excited to do that. I'm going to take a little bit of a left-hand turn, Chantal, because you mentioned scarcity mindset and how much that relates to trauma. And I know that that being in scarcity changes, literally changes the way we think and our our ability to make choices and decisions Mm -hmm. that are in alignment with what we say that we want. It's almost like we get decision-making fatigue. It seems like more quickly when we're, we live in scarcity or we're forced to live in scarcity. And we're also like, we are, I would say both of our, what we do, trauma of money and holisticism, we're like wellness adjacent, right? And so much of the wellness and spiritual world is about abundance mindset and get rid of your lack and scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. And one of my personal biggest pet peeves, and I have many, but one of the biggest ones is when people talk about money as just energy. And Mm -hmm. I think it is such a gaslighting way, like it gaslights people and the trauma, the real trauma that they have. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are and kind of where you sit when you see conversations like that happening with people who I think have good intentions, but are are putting themselves in the position to help people with abundance, but are maybe traumatizing them even more with the way that they're setting up money, spirituality, wealth. What do you think about that? Well, I'm in full alignment of your thoughts around this. I think the a lot of the stuff we see around manifesting is yes. misleading and mm-hmm. it's just actually serving the narrative of consumerism in many ways. Yeah, how do you mean? Just like I often see especially like on Instagram like manifesting something to consume, like something to buy and something to have. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many folks like especially when they're building their own business, like, yeah, just like invest and spend the money. Because if you spend the money on this, then you're more, you're in the consciousness and you're going to attract. And it's like, well, you know, like, did you actually consider the ROI of that investment? And, you know, and also so much of the manifesting is missing that trauma informed piece where a lot of this like abundance mindset 
it plays with the subconscious, right? And so much trauma sits in the subconscious. You cannot bypass the subconscious to truly get into those those shifts, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's really what we teach in the trauma of money is, yeah, like we believe in quantum physics, we're into it, but like also you cannot bypass trauma. And and there are certain things that are external that will result in trauma beliefs, maybe even conscious and subconscious that you can't just manifest your way out of because you're actually living in the state of trauma. Like living in capitalism can be constant it's constantly traumatizing for people, right? So fully in alignment. And also one thing I never hear about really in these conversations around abundance mindset and scarcity mindset is the actual psychology of scarcity. Hmm. Like we know that there are, scarcity changes the brain. Mm -hmm. We know that in a trauma triggered state, the prefrontal cortex goes offline, our amygdala gets activated. You know, we go into the emotional brain, the body starts freaking out. We also know that scarcity, being in scarcity, or the belief that we're in scarcity does the same thing. It lowers our cognitive capacity. It impacts impulse control. It impacts executive functioning and decisioning because it's basically the prefrontal cortex is going offline. So there's actual like neurological changes happening when someone is in a state of scarcity. So I absolutely believe in scarcity mindset because consumerism tells us oftentimes that we don't have enough And we have to be seeking more, right? Mm -hmm. And even our economic systems, like if you go to the, like the American Association of Economics, and you look at how they define economics, it says it's the study of scarcity, right? Wow, really? Yeah. Yes, it is the study of scarcity. Here, well, I guess that's that's like markets, because that's that's literally economics. It's just like what's available and what's not. Economics is the study of scarcity, the study of how people use resources and respond to incentives. American <laughs> Economic Association, direct from their website. Whoa. Yeah. And so if we know that scarcity actually changes the brain and activates the amygdala, which is the center of fear, and but like scarcity is lit- layered into our economic systems, that will result in the belief that we don't have enough. And the brain does not know the difference between like, I'm actually in housing scarcity, or I believe I'm in housing scarcity. Mm-hmm. So I think the mindset is a real thing. But to really like, use that and like minimize the fact that folks, there are many folks in serious financial scarcity, or in housing scarcity or food scarcity. And we have a lot of judgment around the, like, even from a policy standpoint of like how much money gets invested into financial literacy programs Mm -hmm. for folks who have been marginalized or folks in poverty. Like just that alone shows that at a policy level, scarcity is not understood because what we need is more, like you talked about decision fatigue and there's something that happens to the brain called bandwidth tax when we're in mm-hmm. scarcity, where our entire bandwidth for everything is taxed and we mm-hmm. get become essentially exhausted. And so, you know, the researchers on scarcity say, like, we need bandwidth sensitivity policies over financial literacy. Wow. That's, what would that look like? Yeah. Bandwidth sensitivity policy. policies? Yeah. Well, even things like paying people once a week. <sighs> Like imagine you you pay employees once a week versus yeah. every two weeks, how much easier oh, they're able to yeah. manage 
like then would you need would there be a desire a need for payday loans which are one of the most predatory lending products if people were paid more frequently like this is an example of a bandwidth sensitivity policy hmm. or like micro loans that aren't predatory mm-hmm. bandwidth sensitivity policy and then you know also like the the research around scarcity says that scarcity pretty much impacts most people the same And so there's this one quote, being poor, for example, reduces a person's cognitive capacity more than going one full night without sleep. I've read that before. Yeah. So it is not that the poor have less bandwidth as individuals, rather that it is that the experience of poverty reduces anybody's bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is where like those bandwidth sensitivity policies are so important also on an individual level. Like if you are experienced scarcity mindset individually, how can you invite some bandwidth sensitivity policies with your, within your own mentality? Yeah. What, what do you think that looks like for people who are listening like right now and are thinking, okay, how can I do that today or this week? For well, when we're in a state of scarcity, we do something called tunneling. So if you're in scarcity, do not go meet with a financial advisor and plan your retirement because that's outside of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. Like we lose goal inhibitions when we're in a state of scarcity. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is you need to put out the fires within your tunnel. Mm -hmm. So that's your number one focus and only kind of really focus on short-term goals within the tunnel while you're in the state of scarcity. And then we focus on creating slack for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So slack is room, it's space. And because in scarcity, we, we experience this bandwidth tax where we become exa- exhausted. And then we also experience something called temptation tax, where we're more likely to act out on an impulse or a temptation when we're in a state of scarcity. So this is why when you're having financial difficulties, you will go spend $45 on Uber Eats for just yourself when you mm-hmm. probably can't afford it mm-hmm. because you're... you're freaking exhausted. And then you're acting out on on the temptation, right? And so the bandwidth sensitivity on an individual level, I think is very similar to the like window of tolerance, nervous system regulation practices, you know, creating slack or creating rest within the nervous system. This reminds me so much. We, We just had a podcast guest who was awesome, Victoria Albina, and we were talking about diet culture and how so much of sort of like how much space diet culture takes up in the brain. It reminded us of the space that scarcity takes up in the brain too. Like when you have $0 in your bank account or you're overdrawn in your bank account or you're not sure how you're going to pay your rent. It's for me, it was the only thing I could think about all day long, constantly. And just like with dieting, when you say, oh, I can't spend, I can't use that. I can't eat that thing. Then eventually you reach that sort of like fever pitch where you're like, who fucking cares? I'm going to eat a hundred donuts. Like right now, I'm going to spend all this money on something that on like drugstore makeup, you know, what something that isn't a necessity that you feel like you really need that you come to regret. And that cycle is like, it's so addictive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so hard to get out of. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, when I used to teach financial literacy, like traditional financial literacy to teenagers, I would go into high schools and I worked a lot with, you know, within like at-risk youth programs and within communities that have been marginalized and we would do budgeting and the students who that come- That just made me want to throw up. Like I just know. even the idea of budgeting is really traumatizing. It is. Is this what you're yeah. going to say? It's like that in and of itself is traumatizing. Well, no, what I was going to say Not is like the students who are living in poverty were the best at budgeting. 
mm-hmm. like the best at budgeting. Because they've been doing it forever. Well, because they think about money all day long, mm-hmm. right? Just so yeah. it's just like what you're saying. And there's this belief that like if someone is in poverty or someone is experiencing you know, like scarcity at some level, they're not maybe thinking about money enough. And it's not true. It's like constantly on the mind. Yes. Yeah. And yes, by the way, going to teach a bunch of teenagers living in poverty about budgeting makes me want to throw up too now knowing <laughs> what I know. <laughs> for someone who, for someone who's like, oh, fuck, I have trauma around money and mm-hmm. I cannot abundance mindset my way around that trauma but I want to move through it or I want to heal it is just the process of sort of like putting out the fires in your tunnel. Like we talked about, is that healing of, of trauma in a way, or do we need more support? Do we need to go talk to a therapist or work with trauma of money? Like what can we do to now that we might kind of be able to see so clearly, ah, I've got, I've got some stuff to work on in order to move forward. So putting out the fire is not going to help so much with the trauma it's basically giving yourself a moment to rest Mm -hmm. while existing in trauma right Mm -hmm. so yeah there's absolutely more to explore and to really summarize this very quickly our approach in trauma of money is one decrease shame and two increase discernment and so everything we're doing is either working at the decrease shame level or the increased discernment level and so we have like in the trauma of money, we have a six phase method for interacting with like healing around our relationship with money. And phase one, we call the window of regulation phase or the window of resilience phase. And this is like adapted from Dan Siegel's window of tolerance, which is like really nervous system work is mm-hmm. first identify the state of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Because like, we don't want to do a lot from a place where trauma is flooding us or we're mm-hmm. like being cascaded with trauma because we know we lose access to like a lot of our cognitive functioning and a lot of the decisions that we're making are coming from like a distorted place of like this or that type thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first is always the state of the nervous system. And then from there, we go into like narrative exploration. So one of my favorite questions is to ask, whose shame is this? Whose shame is this? And, you know, one thing that has become so clear on this trauma of money journey is that I see folks like working on their relationship with money or a lot of folks offering tools to help people on their relationship with money. And it helps to an extent And then I feel like people hit a block. And I really believe my theory is that like consumerism pushes individualism, right? And so we will approach our relationship with money through the lens of healing our individual traumas. Hmm. And the problem with that is so much trauma around money comes from collective trauma, like Hmm. colonization and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know where you stand within those systems that cause a lot of harm and pain, you're going to experience most likely an element of cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. where you might have two conflicting beliefs happening at the same time. Maybe one's conscious and one's subconscious and they lead to like self-sabotage behavior, right? So in the narrative exploration in this trauma of money method, 
we ask whose shame is this? And we say, well, you know, I grew up with a mom who would constantly say this around money, but I also live in capitalism that tells me that I'm not worth anything unless I'm doing shit all day long. Right. Mm -hmm. So like that question, we go into the, the macro and micro and the individual and the collective sources of, of the shame and the narrative and identifying the sources of the narrative helps us increase our ability to discern what narratives we want to consciously claim and invite in and which ones we don't. As a Scorpio moon, I'm like, Mm -hmm. how can I always be the devil's advocate? Or how can I see it from the devil's advocate perspective? And this isn't really that, but I do wonder is what there's a dichotomy, right? I think with like healing money trauma, and I'm sure people are called to this work because they want more money, right? They want to feel Mm -hmm. safe and secure and abundant. And maybe not 100% of people, but I would say probably a lot of people. And also, isn't that the trauma of money? It's like thinking uh, that we'll be okay when we have more money. Yeah, does that make sense? Like, yeah, isn't that kind does. of capitalism telling us, like, also that's what we want? We want to, we want that. Yeah, you can definitely frame it in that way, and that's what a lot of our students show up with is mm-hmm. that belief that you know, money is greedy, rich people are assholes. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm in scarcity and I can't pay my rent and I really want my business to succeed. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's definitely very present. Most of the folks that come in to work with us are usually under earners because they they share these beliefs and they have a lot of empathy for the harms of capitalism and they don't Mm -hmm. want to participate in that. So is the answer to reject money? I mean, that is a financial disorder in itself. It's financial rejection, right? Mm -hmm. And we believe at Trauma of Money that having wealth and creating wealth and having abundance does not mean that you're evil and you're going to participate in exploitation. Mm -hmm. And we believe in wealth redistribution and moving more wealth into the hands of folks who can be trusted with money. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's something that we really try to model. And we model that by charging money for our course, mm-hmm. you know, and I've had people comment and say, oh, you're charging money for this course when you're talking about like anti-capitalism stuff. And it's like, yeah, because first of all, I know that we, my organization can be trusted with money. We give away a lot of scholarships. We also do profit sharing within the business with our teachers. That's cool. And so we're like reimagining capitalism in our own little way. And as the business grows, like everyone's kind of grown with us and their wealth is growing with us. And we know we can be tr- we can be trusted with money and we're we're constantly like focused on communi- community community care support so we really want to model that for people because it's not about like having and oftentimes the amount of money that we want in comparison to the lens of exploitation is so small like oftentimes mm-hmm. folks come in and are like i just want to like have a house and you know, like maybe afford to go on a vacation and, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a lot where it's like exploit, it's at the, at the harms of other people. Right. So we do a lot of work in the program around reimagining capitalism Mm -hmm. and really identifying how can I, in what feels like an integrity for me, Mm-hmm. show up in a way where I'm spending and earning and saving and investing 
where it's not like exploiting and it's in alignment with my values. And when I mentioned the six layered model of trauma of money at the beginning, I mentioned laws of nature as one Mm -hmm. of the categories. And I don't know if this is the right name for that category, but it's kind of what we went with. But the whole purpose of this category was to say that like other worldviews are possible around money, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we were so fortunate to have a, a Many Indigenous educators come into the trauma of money and teach about the Indigenous worldview around wealth and abundance, mm-hmm. right? And there's not shame or guilt because there's a lot of reciprocity there, mm-hmm. you know? So it's really like, how can we invite in a different a different worldview? I love that. I think that there's a bit of a, there's, there's some vigor, I think, since 2020 happened, since the pandemic happened around anti-capitalism and it, and I think actually like a, a deep misunderstanding of what that is and people that are sort of raging against capitalism, which fair, but sort of saying like the only answer is anti-capitalism that looks like this. And mm-hmm. if you are not doing it exactly in that way, then you are an evil bastard capitalist. I think it's actually like really harmful and problematic and not useful. And I'm so, I'm so interested what you think sort of the future of divesting from capitalism in a conscientious, holistic, community-focused way might look for intuitive business owners or people that, that are into this, but also like want to pay their, <laughs> want to pay their rent and want to be able to buy groceries and, and more, right? Like want to be able to retire, want mm-hmm. to be able to take weeks off. My big goal that I talk about is like, I want to take a year of maternity leave. And like, why wouldn't I be able to do that if I have a child, God willing? Like I run my own business. I'm my own boss. Like, why can't I set that up? But when I tell that to people, they're like, wow, that's crazy. How can you possibly even think about doing that? That's wild. And I'm curious for you, what do you think that sort of future looks like? So I'm very lucky at Trauma of Money because I have a business advisor named Jacqueline Jennings, who's good friends with Stacey. And Jacqueline works with entrepreneurs and helps them create more of a decolonized approach to their relationship with entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And one thing that she tells me all the time is about this like kind of this or that thinking approach. Mm -hmm. Like there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Mm -hmm. And we know like this is a, this is an indication of an enlarged amygdala being in a state of fear. So to say that unless you participate in capitalism this way, you are being exploitive. Like Mm -hmm. that to me sounds very, that in itself is a very colonized, enlarged amygdala view, right? And I get very concerned uh, about holding on to any viewpoint rigidly Mm -hmm. because it just, I, I try to have this view that maybe there's information I don't fully know yet, or maybe we haven't imagined the possibility yet. Maybe it's unmanifested at this point, right? And it hasn't been been born, you know, like why do we, if we knew exactly the alternative to capitalism, why aren't we doing it? I just don't know if we know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're only pulling from what we've seen in the past. And I think that that is the issue. And, and how can we go into the space of like, being okay with more of the uncertainty and being in more of the exploration and trying to imagine a different world by like really lining up with our values and our vision. So 
for example, you're talking about your goal for one year mat leave, which is so beautiful and also feels to me anti-capitalist, you know, and, <laughs> and, but then people will say, but is it, you would have to create a bunch of wealth to be able to do that. And, and you have to do that through the vehicle of capitalism. And yeah, you're always going to get people who are going to pull it apart. But like, you know, like it's just really focusing on your values and what's important to you and, and standing in dignity that you're not exploiting anyone along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish it more people would look at it from that framework of exploitation versus the blanket statement of capitalism. Because yes, the capitalism that we've experienced has gone hand in hand with exploitation and sites and systems of oppression. And it's possible that we could have a world where capitalism is not just, you know, not like kissing cousins with all of these, uh, with sexism, racism, misogyny, anti-Semitism. the list goes on, ableism, ageism. And we just haven't really like found a framework for that quite yet. It's possible that that could be in the world. It's possible that we could remake capitalism in that in that way, right? And it exists differently in many countries, the way that it functions with the US versus Canada versus countries in Europe and the relationship to the value of work and the value of rest is so different. Mm. And even just looking to other governmental models of how they're dialoguing with capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like what we work on in the trauma of money, which is work on increasing discernment. Mm -hmm. Because like through that increase of discernment, we have the ability to tap into more creative visioning of what we actually really want. Yeah, critical thinking and wrestling with the nuance. And And this is why like this, we were talking about Maceo earlier. This is why I invited him to teach. He teaches about our relationship relationship with time. And Mm -hmm. I said, can you talk to the class about like, why we interact with time in the way that we do? And I really want them to think about this. Like, why do we have a five day work week? Mm -hmm. Why do we feel like we're only valuable at work if we're doing this? Yeah. And so that's all around that, like, being a philosopher, being a curious scientist and going mm-hmm. into that, like increasing the discernment. So for the purpose of creative visioning. Mm, I love that. I mean, one of our big things at holisticism is that everything is connected. And mm-hmm. we even teach this class on systems where we teach people how to build a second brain, basically like a knowledge hub where the things that they read and they interact with, they can take really quick notes on and quickly connect to each other. Cause it's a great way to build a web of knowledge over time that accumulates and that grows and that sort of like like a fine wine gets better and better. And when you start to begin to think in that way, as opposed to thinking and taking in knowledge, like we do fast fashion, where it's like in and we kind of metabolize it really quickly. And then it like leaves our consciousness forever. When you review and you recycle information and it builds upon itself, you can build this lush world and perspective and view. And you start to make connections that you never would before, like thinking about time, our relationship to time and how that might contribute to the way that you ask for, to get paid for a project that you're working on with an organization. We talk a lot about nature and using nature as like the ultimate ecosystem and systems builder because she has zero redundancies and zero waste. And how can we have fewer redundancies in our lives with our time? And like, how can none of our energy be wasted so that when we rest, we are truly at rest so that we have time. Like there's no, there's no leaking energy. So I just love that you, you've lived in Maceo. <laughs> wow. That's, that's so beautiful. You know, there's this theory from behavioral economics called mental accounting. Do you know about this? No. So mental accounting is something that we can use to our advantage when it comes to money, but it also can be a major disservice. And mental accounting says that our brain will naturally compartmentalize things. 
And especially when there's a lot of information out there for us to be able to really like understand it, we have to create these different boxes. So an example of how we can use mental accounting with our money to serve us is let's say you're an overspender and all your money goes into your checking account and you've got like all this money in this one account and you're about to make a purchase, but you can't do the mental math in your head to decide like, oh no, am I taking money away from my rent if I buy these shoes? Mm -hmm. So they say like separate your spending money and put it into a separate account. And then you've got this like cute little box and it's very easy to be like, okay, yeah, I've got $500 there. I can buy the shoes. And I know it's, so that's how we use mental accounting to our advantage. But how it, it disturbs us is we love to compartmentalize. So it's challenging unless you invite the ability to find the holistic, view towards things. And I see this all the time in trauma of money where, you know, the number one student that takes the training at trauma of money are trauma therapists. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, you know, this stuff, you've studied this stuff, you teach this stuff, Mm -hmm. but what you haven't done is you haven't applied these frameworks to money because we mentally account, we compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. So here we are in class, we've got like Andrea Glick, who is our somatic trauma therapist teaching about like, which we love her. Yeah. We love somatic (laughs) witch. So Andrea is teaching about like polyvagal theory, to the trauma therapist in the room and you're watching them have like these aha moments because she made the connection to money. Exactly. And it's like, we really have to invite that space in our brain, which is like creating a new compartment for holisticism Mm -hmm. as you do. It's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. It's, and life is so much more interesting (laughs) when you apply frameworks that you can learn in other industries or in other perspectives to like what you're experiencing. Like when you can take those lenses and try them, I'm obsessed with frameworks and mental models. Like Wallace will tell you, I I bring them up to the team all the time. I'm like collecting them like a little hobbit. Like I'm just obsessed with them. And I love applying a mental model or a framework to something that I'm stuck on or something that I feel so certain of that I'm like, how can I just like blow my theory out of the water and just really (laughs) dysregulate myself and start back at the beginning of like, I I need to think about this again. But I feel like life is so much more interesting and so much more fun when I'm able to make those connections. Agreed. I love it. I I know that we're running out of time. Before we hop off, I know that you guys have a new cohort in the spring coming up, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there are people who are like, how do I start now? How can I work on my trauma of money now? What can people do in the interim? Yeah, I would say one is familiar, familiarize yourself with nervous system literacy and really get to know like uh, and pay attention to the states of your nervous system. And so that's like understanding the connection between the brain and the body and and that they are connected. We don't just have a brain. We also have a body mm-hmm. and they communicate with each other. So for example, when money stress arises, like noticing where you feel it. If you're feeling a tightness in your throat, like usually that is connected to there's something stuck there and you don't feel like you're able to voice it. If you feel a tightness in your chest, that's really connected to like the sympathetic nervous system. So that's where maybe the fight or flight sits. If you're feeling it in your stomach, like a nauseous feeling, that's the parasympathetic nervous system that is collapse. 
Mm. right? That is freeze. And maybe that's fawning too. So people pleasing. And Mm -hmm. so like even that intelligence of like, whoa, where is it at? And Mm -hmm. how is that connected to the different states of the nervous system? And then once you identify like, what is your, what is your nervous reaction? Like my nervous reaction is to fawn to people please. Mm -hmm. So when I feel unsafe, I'm going to like nice the shit out of you, right? (laughs) And so that's very good information for me because I can pay attention to that. And then I can invite some tools for myself to get the nervous system back into a more regulated space. And then from there, I would say, become a philosopher of your narratives Mm -hmm. and really understanding where they're coming from. And find, like you were talking, Michelle, like, find pattern recognition Mm -hmm. and look for like, oh, wow, I interact with money the same way I interact with time. Mm -hmm. And I also noticed that my mom did this, Mm -hmm. but I also noticed this narrative is coming from, you know, the patriarchy and like start exploring the sources of those narratives. And I'd say that's a really good place to start because that inviting in that mindfulness will help really kind of slow, help you slow down before you react. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. A philosopher of your own narratives. I'm, Mm -hmm. I love that so much. I'm going to write about that later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was amazing. Chantal, we're going to have to have you back on because I know people are going to love this episode. Thank you for making the time for us. And I think we're obsessed with you. Thank Thank you you so much, friends. This was really fun. All right. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening, for rating, reviewing, subscribing, for sharing this on Instagram. All of it helps us grow. And the more we grow, the better guests we can get, the more time we can spend to make this, the more content we can make for you. And that is our true pleasure, especially to be able to to offer this to you for free. If you want to learn more about holisticism, we have a lot of stuff upcoming. We have our digital alters notion for magical baddies class opening up in December. I'll put the link below so that you can get on the wait list to know when the spots open up. We have a limited number of spots and this class was at capacity last time we ran it, which is the first time we ran it. So if you heard about it and you were like, fuck FOMO, I want to get in on that again. Just a heads up, the class is live and we have a limited number of spots because I can only hold the container with so many people because I am a small person and I would love to have you if you're down to join. So the best way to make sure that you get your spot is to get on the wait list and you'll be the first to know before anyone else when doors open for digital altars. It's so much fun. What else is happening? I'm teaching a class on future visioning your 2022 and create, giving you an action plan for your circular sales calendar. Future visioning is something that we I only offer inside of the North Node. It's a special... I don't even know what to call it, container, I guess, that I take people through to help them do timeline collapsing and archetype embodiment. And we'll pair that with building your 2022 sales calendar, circular sales calendar. So figuring out how you can build your ecosystem in a way that's supportive to you, your breath, your community, your rest, and your bank account. And which is kind of what we talked about in this episode with Chantal. So if you're curious to learn more about that stuff, we'll put links below. And that's all I got. I hope that you enjoyed this and I'll see you on the internet. Thank you.